Thank you so much again, uh, worship team. So grateful uh, for you. So glad to see you this morning, my church family. I love you and uh, I missed you. I'm always glad to be uh, with you on Sunday morning. Uh, we're going to continue worshiping as we uh, respond to a proclamation from the word. I've got a few friends that call me fairly regularly from other states and in states like Indiana, California, Tennessee. And if they call early in the week, like on a Monday or Tuesday, they'll typically say to me, hey, what did you preach on yesterday? What was your message about? If they call later in the week, like on a Friday or Saturday, they'll say, hey, what are you, what are you preaching on tomorrow? What are you preaching on this Sunday? Well, I had a couple of those questions this weekend. Hey, what's the message on this Sunday? I didn't even have the heart to tell them. I really didn't. I couldn't even, I didn't know how do you say this in a short conversation. We're looking at a passage in scripture that says that women should be quiet and submissive in the church. I thought, you know what? I'm not even going to try to get into it in this brief conversation. It's not the easiest passage uh, in the world to explain and certainly not one that I would pick if I were uh, asked to preach at a conference somewhere. Uh, but this is what happens when you work your way through the, book, uh, the books of the Bible, the text of Scripture. You have to deal with the hard stuff as well as the easier stuff. And this is where we find ourselves this morning, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Let me pray. We're going to need God's help this morning, as we always do. Uh, Father, we thank you that we have been set free. We thank you that you are the living God. You are all-powerful. You are holy and right in all your ways. All your ways are just. Your thoughts always pure. There is no darkness in you. Lord, we know we have no hope of gaining an audience before that living God except for the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us this morning to take seriously and approach humbly your word. We ask that you would speak to us. We ask that you would help us to understand what you want us to understand and to respond in a way that brings you glory and honor. We'll ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to cover verses 11 through 15. When I was in my early teenage years, my best friend was a guy by the name of Scott Kreitzer. And uh, between the ages of 13 and 15, we spent just about every waking moment together. We'd play basketball in his driveway, wiffle ball in his backyard. His, his neighborhood had a pool, so we'd go to the pool sometimes. We'd ride our bikes all over uh, creation. We were pretty much inseparable. And Scott's parents uh, became kind of my second parents, my second mom and dad, and I love them. I still do. Uh, and Scott's dad was the, he was a, a loving and gracious guy, but he was also the very earnest type. You know this type? Um, they don't joke around very much, and sarcasm just kind of goes right over uh, their heads. And this is the way my friend Scott's dad was. He was a veteran of uh, Vietnam and saw many in his battalion uh, die in combat, and that changed him, understandably. And so he was a guy, even though he was loving, he was a guy who didn't really suffer, let me say, teenage shenanigans very well. He just wasn't a guy who really liked to joke around very much. We were sitting watching a movie. I was sitting watching a movie with his family one night. His mom, Scott's mom and dad, Scott's brother and I. And Scott's brother was the real sarcastic type. He was a real smart aleck and still is to this day. Always got sort of a, a wise remark. And we we're watching this movie together. And Scott's brother made a comment that suggested that he couldn't tell if the main character was a man or a woman. And he went on to suggest, again, you know, kind of being a smart aleck, that 
He really didn't know the difference between men and women anyway. Well, remember, Scott's dad was the earnest type. So he uh, immediately shut, uh, hit stop on the VCR. Um, he turned the lights up in the living room, asked his wife to leave the room. And he spent the next hour, almost an hour, explaining to us. Now, we weren't eight years old. We were 15. Explaining to us the difference between men and women. It was the most awkward conversation of my entire life, seriously. That, that hour was the longest year of my life. I, I studied that carpet. I never looked up for a single hour. I can, I can still tell you how all the threads were woven together in that carpet. I didn't want to look up. I was so embarrassed by the whole situation. We already knew this. We knew that men and women are different. Everybody knows this. Right? Little kids know this. Babies can tell there's a difference between men and women. Now, even though there's more confusion in our day related to manhood and womanhood, and even though, even though the gender lines are being blurred more every day, and even though there are some, like, for example, comedian Tig Notaro, um, uh, New York City professor uh, Lorna Smedman, there are some who argue that gender is fictional, that there's really no such thing as, as gender. Even though we have that going on, most people will still admit, most people will still admit that there's, there are differences between men and women. It's kind of hard to deny, isn't it? Well, the issue comes, the real uh, rubber meets the road, when we start to discuss how those differences play out, what those differences actually mean in the home. And in the church, this is, these are the discussions that cause the most debate and, dare I say, the most outrage. What does it mean that men and women are different? Well, the passage we're in this morning may appear on the surface to stoke the controversy. But I think if it's understood correctly, it's actually going to provide some hope for us. It's going to be helpful, uh, some safety, uh, some relief, and even, I believe, uh, some healing. So this morning, we're going to look at the ministry of women in the church, 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I'm going to kind of work this, rather than read the whole section, just read one verse and explain it, kind of show, show you how it all fits together. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, the text reads this way. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. So last week... Paul said that women should wear respectable clothing, right? They shouldn't wear gold or, or fancy jewelry or have big hair. And then this week, he goes a step further, as if that weren't controversial enough. He goes a step fur further and says that women, he says, women should learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, if you missed the explanation of what this discussion on jewelry and pearls and braids means, you can listen to that online. Um, but when we encounter verse 11 that I just read, our eyes are inclined to jump immediately to the phrase, quietly with all submission. This is where we want to go, isn't it? This is where we want to camp out, quietly with all submission. But the first part is equally substantive and equally controversial. Let a woman learn, Paul says. See, in the first century Greco-Roman world, this would have been a scandalous notion. In both the Jewish culture and also the Roman culture, Women were maligned, they were abused, they were ignored, they were mistreated, and they were, they were prohibited, and most of the time, and at least discouraged from higher learning, from learning outside the home, particularly as it, it relates to theology. In fact, 
according to the opinion of some of the Jewish rabbis of the day, it would have been better for the Torah, the Old Testament law, to be burned than to, the, than to land in the hands of a woman. There was an old saying in the Babylonian Talmud that went something like this, when women and men gather to worship, the men come to learn and the women come to hear. So you had, there was, that, there was this disparity. A few years later, Origen wrote, wrote some really good stuff and some really crazy stuff. He said this in the third century. He said, men should not listen to women, even if they say saintly things. That is of little consequence. They come from the mouth of a woman. Now, don't write that down and put Pastor John next to it. This is not me. I'm quoting somebody else uh, from the third century. Um, in the context in which Paul writes, again, women were discouraged from learning. In many cases, prohibited from learning outside the home, from pursuing education and higher learning. But Paul says, verse 11, let a woman learn. The context here is within the gathering of the saints, within the church that is assembled, let a woman learn. This was innovative. This was offensive. This was beautiful. And it is, in fact, God's design. Now, here's our first point if you're taking notes. Women should explore every opportunity to formally and informally deepen their understanding of God. See, theology is not a man's domain. Theology is not reserved simply for men. Theology, uh, theos, which is God, ology, the study, study of the science of God, it's not relegated simply to men. Women should pursue every opportunity to grow in the knowledge and grace of God. Now, it doesn't mean that every woman has to go to seminary, but some should to continue to deepen their understanding. What this does mean, though, is that women ought to study theology at colleges and seminaries, go to conferences, learn original languages, share in Bible studies, be encouraged to research and write on theological issues. Women should desire to learn and grow and to use their giftedness for the benefit of others. However, Paul says, look at verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Say, well, if a woman's supposed to learn and, and grow in her theological understanding, then what, what in the world does that mean? Command seems a little unreasonable, doesn't it? Given the, uh, the difference between the amount of words that women use per day and men use per day. Uh, women, you know, it's, it's no secret, scientists would say, that women say a lot more words than men. So what, what is Paul thinking here? Is he just sort of, is he lost, uh, so he was a single guy, so maybe he's just kind of oblivious to this. Why would he say such a thing? Well, here's the deal. Quietly doesn't mean silently. And this is where the King James Bible does us a bit of a disservice, to be honest with you. The word simply means attentive, undistracted. Paul's not telling women they can't talk. He's telling them to learn with receptivity, to learn with a desire to grow rather than just talk over people. Apparently when the, uh, the church at Ephesus, remember they met in, in, in homes and there were sometimes homes that were 35, 40 people that would meet that made up the church. And apparently when they would gather, there were men who were being contentious with each other quarreling and getting angry with each other. Hence the section we looked at a couple of weeks ago where Paul says that when you come, I want men to lift holy hands and pray without anger or quarreling. So apparently there were men who were, who were 
sort of on edge with each other. And there were women who, when the church would gather, they were loudly talking and busy spreading gossip. First Timothy 5 calls them busybodies, rather than actually listening to instruction. Now, you know, if you're, if you're in a group of 25 to 30 people and someone's talking loudly, that's a distraction, isn't it? And so what Paul is saying is that the, a woman should learn attentively, respectfully, not eager to inter, interject or, or, or talk over someone. Uh, she should learn the next phrase, with all submissiveness. Now, submission in the Bible is not weakness. It's not inferiority. It's not checking your opinion or abilities or gifts or thoughts at the door. All, all submission means, if we understand the word correctly, it means coming under God's prescribed order. That's what the word means. It means to submit means, means to recognize a, divine, a divinely established order. This means to arrange oneself under. And in this case, it's the order in the church. The point, again, the point's not that when a woman comes to church, she's supposed to zip it, right? This is not what Paul's saying. Or she's supposed to bottle up her opinions. Nor is Paul saying that all women should submit to all men. But that Christian women should respect and come under the authority that God has commissioned uh, to those who will teach the scriptures and not distract from their message by being vocally combative or being unreceptive. In fact, um, former president of the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, David Platt, says it this way. He sums it up this way. He's a very conservative guy. He says, the text is simply saying that a woman should listen attentively with a teachable spirit to the God-ordained leaders in the church when they are teaching the word. That's all it means. That's all it means. That's it. Now, this is the only disposition, by the way, that anybody can have if they expect to learn, not just women. How can anybody expect to learn if you're going to come and talk over the people who are teaching? How can you expect to learn if you're not attentive? So this is what Paul is saying. But if that's what he's saying, then again, how do we make sense of this uh, verse 12? I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now this is where we have at least six or seven interpretations. And I read all of them and I studied them all. And um, there are a lot of different interpretive approaches to this particular passage, this, this verse and this phrase, right? Um, there are those who simply reject this and say that Paul was wrong in what he was teaching. And there are those who go uh, to the other, I don't know if it's the other extreme, but to the other side and say, this only applied to first century Ephesus. It does not apply in 2018. So how do we make sense of it? Well, we have to look at the context. We also have to look at the words that are used. The word for teach is a Greek word, didaskein. Um, which, given its use throughout the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy, Titus, it has to do with the exposition of Scripture. That is, the authoritative transmission of doctrine. We might call it preaching. The authoritative transmission of doctrine. And the word translated ex exercise authority is a Greek word, authentine, which is a word that only appears here in the New Testament, no other place in the New Testament. And it has to do with judicial or governing prerogative. So here's what we're talking about. To teach, uh, didaskain, the, the authoritative transmission of biblical truth. Exercise authority, authentic, judicial or governing prerogative. And these words teach and exercise authority, they actually go together. They qualify each other so as to communicate a wider Pauline concern 
that the responsibility of wielding teaching instruction, teaching authority in the church, that is to say publicly communicating doctrine, preaching we might say, should be reserved exclusively for men. Let me say it a different way, and this is our second point. Women should be encouraged and equipped to effectively minister. However, exercising teaching authority in the church is reserved for qualified men. So women should be encouraged and equipped to effectively minister. However, exercising teaching authority in the church is reserved for qualified men. And exercising teaching authority is the responsibility and the role of the elder, the overseer, the pastor. Which explains why in the next chapter, Paul will restrict the role of elder overseer to qualified men. Not simply men, but qualified men. So the role of exercising teaching authority, that is to say, the authoritative communication of doctrine, preaching, is reserved for qualified men. Now, here's what I believe in, in light of that specific command. And it's, it's okay if you differ a little bit on this spectrum. But I believe, I don't think there's any problem with women leading small groups, uh, giving announcements on Sunday, praying in a corporate gathering, giving a benediction, teaching in a seminary, or leading worship. I don't even have a problem. This is my own personal no, I haven't run this by anybody else. I don't have a problem with a woman uh, taking the entire 35 or 40 minutes and giving a critical ministry update or sharing a mission uh, experience or mission update. So we have ladies who are in other parts of the world who some are under literal fire. Some, so I don't have a problem with a woman giving a mission update. However, I cannot see how a woman serving in a way that demonstrates teaching authority, that is to say serving as an elder or, or preaching, the authoritative communication of Scripture, I don't see how that does not violate the teaching of Scripture. So I believe this is a role, that this teaching authority is a role that is reserved for qualified men. Now someone might say, well last week you said that the whole thing about braids and gold and jewelry, that was, all, that was just for this specific context. How do we know that this particular command is not just to the church in first century Ephesus? I think it's a great question. If you're asking that question, that's a terrific question. I think Paul answers it in the next two verses. Look at verses 13 and 14. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Actually, let me stop there because... This is very important. Birth order in the scriptures is of great significance. It doesn't really mean as much today, um, but it was of, of tremendous significance back then. Um, the firstborn of the family, this is, we really need this information to understand some of Jesus' parables even. The firstborn of the family inherits responsibility and authority. Now, if we have more time, I'd show you numerous examples in scripture where this bears out. But for now, let's just consider the story of Adam and Eve, since this is what Paul brings up. Adam was the firstborn of humanity. So he was the firstborn. So it was Adam who, for example, named the animals. It was Adam who, who uh, was given responsibility, charged with keeping up the earth. It was from Adam that Eve was made, a point not lost on the Apostle Paul in his letters. Eve was made uh, from Adam to be his helper, to be his complement. Completely equal, yet with different roles. 
So one way to determine if a passage is normative, which means it applies through all ages and generations and cultures, or if it's simply descriptive, it describes what was going on back then, is you look at the appeal on which the teaching is based. So what is, the, what is the one who's writing the scripture appeal to? If, for example, the one writing the scripture appeals to the character of God, that particular command then is normative for all ages. For example, we're commanded to love one another. Right? Well, God is love. That's a command that flows from the character of God. So we love one another. And this is not specific to any time or culture. We're, we're called to be honest with one another and not lie to one another. That's because God's character is one of pure light, a God who does not lie, a God in whom there is only truth. Likewise, if a command is rooted in creation, either the order of creation or the creation mandate of Genesis 1 and 2, that command is binding for all cultures and all generations. And let me give you one that's not. You have in Leviticus 19, uh, we're commanded not to wear clothing of two different types of fabric. Well, that's not God doesn't wear clothing, right? This is, not, this is not rooted in the character of God, so that was specific to that culture. I shared with you last week how a woman came up to my wife and, said, and quoted and trotted out Deuteronomy 21. A woman should not wear clothing pertaining to a man and said, you look like a man. That is a, that's a command that's rooted in a specific time and place. But commands that, that are rooted or, or appealed to based on the character of God or creation, those then are normative. Here's an, another example. We're commanded in, in, the, in Genesis 1 and 2 to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Now, can you think of a time when that command was ignored and how God responded? It was the Tower of Babel, wasn't it? People were being fruitful, that's for sure. And they were multiplying, that was clear, but they weren't filling the earth. And God is bothered by this. God is offended at their lack of obedience and he would discipline them by what? By scattering them throughout the world. Well, here in 1 Timothy, we have specific roles within the church that are based on the creation order, which is very significant. Uh, Mary Cassian, who's written a very good book called Women, Creation, and the Fall, says this, an understanding of creation is central to a correct biblical understanding of male and female roles as all biblical teaching on roles is contingent on this historic event and apart from this context cannot be understood. In fact, just about everything we have in the Bible on the teaching of the role of men and women in the home and in the church, just about all of it comes from the Apostle Paul. And when Paul talks about the role of women in the church, he almost always goes back to the creation order. In the early chapters of Genesis. And by doing so, he's emphasizing that these gender roles in the church are not simply pertaining to a specific culture or time or place, but in fact are rooted in God's creative design and therefore apply to all cultures. One um, uh, theologian, R.C. Sproul, echoes uh, the Cassian sentiments when he contends, it is a dangerous business indeed to treat the matter of, in, of subordination in marriage and in church as mere local custom when it is clear that these matters rest upon apostolic appeals to creation. Uh, John Stott has written about this as well. I had, there was a guy in my church in California who, he was very, very conservative, and, uh, and angrily so. And, um, and he, he didn't like Christianity Today. He always called it Christianity Astray. Well, there was a great article in Christianity Today. I still call it Christianity Today. And uh, in which John Stott says this, 
He says, all attempts to get rid of Paul's teaching on headship, on grounds that it is mistaken, confusing, culture-bound, or culture-specific, must be pronounced unsuccessful. It remains stubbornly there. It is rooted in divine revelation, not human opinion, and in divine creation, not in human culture. The passage is anchored in the creation account, which means it is normative for all ages and cultures. Men and women are equal in every way. They are equal ontologically. They are equal. But it is possible to have equality and functional differentiation, isn't it? It's possible to have equality and still have different roles. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, consider this. We know that God has forever existed as one God in three persons, right? All three persons completely equal. Of equal essence, we might say. And yet, there is a division of roles within the Godhead. The Son submits to the Father. 1 Corinthians 15. The Son submits to the Father. The Son does the Father's will. John 6. The Father is head over the Son. 1 Corinthians 11. And yet, both are co-equal. The Spirit points to the Son throughout redemptive history. And yet, fully equal with the Father and the Son. Total and complete equality can exist side by side with a differentiation in roles. And, and so here's what I think we can learn from this. Women are to be valued in the church. Their gifts celebrated. They are equal to men. Which means that we as a church have a responsibility to fight against the oppression of women by men seeking to control them. We guard against chauvinism in our day or any day that says that women can't learn, that women shouldn't study theology, they shouldn't use their gifts. We celebrate the giftedness of women in our church. But we also have to preserve the beautiful design established by God that the role of elder, pastor, overseer is reserved for qualified men. The one who would exercise teaching authority that is reserved for qualified men. Now let me say this in case you're thinking, where is this guy coming from? Nobody's going to accept this today. Just in case anyone here thinks I've approached this from a sexist mindset, let me say this. I grew up around strong women. Very strong women. My father left us when, my, when I was five. My, my sister was three and a half. And I saw my mother... A strong woman worked multiple jobs to try to make ends meet. And sometimes they didn't meet. She worked hard. She endured criticism. There were people in the church that we attended who were saying in the church, don't let your kids hang around John and Jennifer Sloan. They come from a broken family. My mom was criticized. My mom was a woman of great strength. And my grandmother on my father's side, Joyce Dalton Sloan, was a strong, courageous woman. Her husband left her after 25 years of marriage to run off with his 20-year-old secretary. And she would come. She was alone. She would come. She would pick up me and my sister. She would take us to the park. She spent time with us. She poured herself into us. She was a strong woman. My sister is a brilliant woman. She can outthink, outreason, outcommunicate, and outwork most men I know. 
And the strongest woman I know is my wife, who worked overtime to put me through seminary so I could learn Greek and Hebrew and study in preparation for ministry. My wife has a theological insight that some men twice her age don't have. So as far as I know, there's not an ounce of male superiority in me, at least that I know of. So I'm not saying this from any position of sexism. But safeguarding the equality of women doesn't mean we have to capitulate to cultural pressure to ignore biblical roles in the home or in the church. Actually, it's the most beautiful thing we can do for the women around us that we love is to preserve God's designed order. It's for our good. So this is what we do. Men and women are equal. One is not better than another, yet God has given each different roles in the church and in the home. And this distinction, I think, will help us make sense of this very, very difficult verse, the last one in this section, verse 15. It says this, Yet she will be saved through childbearing, the woman. And then Paul says, If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, it doesn't get any easier, does it? I mean, this is difficult stuff. What in the world does childbearing have to do with salvation? And it's complicated by the fact that salvation, the word saved, is the Greek word sozo, which almost always means spiritual salvation. So what in the world could Paul be talking about here? What does this actually mean? Now, again, there are at least a half dozen interpretations of this. And I don't pretend to be the one who fully understands it. So I'm not offering you the definitive word on it, right? I'm, I'm not, it's not as though everybody else is wrong and I've figured this out. Um, in fact, I'll, I'll even say that I've changed my view in the last five years as to what that particular verse means. Let me tell you what we know it doesn't mean first. We know for certain that it does not mean that every woman who has children is spiritually saved. And thereby right with God. It can't possibly mean that because that would go against the whole, the witness of all the scriptures. That we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. We can't do enough, work enough, give enough, serve enough to be saved. It's only by faith. You can't bear enough children to be saved. So it's not about that. It can't be about that. The Bible again makes it clear. Salvation, total and complete forgiveness, restoration to God is through faith alone in the work of Christ alone. So it can't mean that. Here, here's what I think it means. Paul has emphasized that there are different roles that must be assumed in the church, one of which is reserved for qualified men. So there are different roles, and one of those is reserved for qualified men. Well, here is the flip side of that equation. Here's an example of a role that can only be exercised by a woman having children. Now, despite some bizarre efforts by some very deranged men that I've read about over the years, only a woman can have children. Only a woman can get pregnant and have children. I, I studied uh, in, in the field of bioethics uh, up in, at a school up north of Chicago, and you read about some really strange things that people try to do. Not just from cloning and, and faking life and making life and men trying to become pregnant. It doesn't matter. Only a woman can become pregnant and, and give birth to children. But in first century Ephesus, again, when this was written, the role of wife and mother had been maligned by the false teachers and criticized by the so-called Gnostics who came in and said they forbid marriage, 1 Timothy 4. They, they said, oh, you, you, know, you don't want to be married. Let, let, me, let me tell you women, let me tell you a more lofty ideal for you. Let me tell you a better way for you. 
You need to be teachers and leaders. And so the role of marriage was, again, was maligned. And these false teachers were presenting to women a more liberated role, they said. And Paul calls on these women to abandon this new, quote, lofty teaching of these heretics and embrace God's design, male headship in the home and in the church. And as the woman, and this is where I think this, we make sense of this, as the woman embraces that role with humility, the one that God has assigned to her exclusively, and refuses to try to grab hold of the headship that God has assigned to her husband, an authority that Eve actually clearly tried to grab hold of and was deceived, that Paul makes reference to, but as a woman embraces that role with humility, the woman will put on the sort of faith, love, holiness, and self-control that give way to a heart that receives God's mercy and offer of salvation. And Brian Chappell's explained it better than I just did. Let me read what he says. He says, when Paul says that women will be saved through childbearing, he means that by not seeking a man's role, they will more likely remain in the heart attitude that invites salvation and its attendant blessings. It's not by giving birth that a woman is saved, nor by raising good children that a woman earns God's favor. We know better. However, when a woman in humility embraces God's design, his sovereign goodness, his provisions, she demonstrates the sort of trust that often leads and accompanies saving faith. It reminds me of something that Jesus said. Remember, Jesus is, he's going about teaching and he's, he's stopping in different villages and his disciples kind of pull him aside for a minute. And uh, they say, hey, can we talk to you for a minute? Uh, and they pull him aside and they say, can you tell us who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? We, need to, we want to know who's going to be closest to you in the kingdom. And, you know, of course, Jesus is bothered by this. He takes, he, he takes a child and he, and he lifts that child up, brings the child to a center. And he says, unless you become like children, you will not, you'll not gain, not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, he's not saying that, that, we, that only children make it into heaven. He's saying that by trying, he wasn't even saying by, by trying to be really humble, we earn God's favor. What he was saying was by humbling oneself, humbling oneself involves abandoning any quest for status apart from Christ. And I believe this is what Paul meant when he made these comments about women and childbearing. Here's what I think he was saying in a nutshell. This is our third point. Gaining entrance into God's kingdom requires relinquishing our rights and perceived status and instead trusting in God's authority and God's provision. Provision. It means arranging ourselves under God's authority and actually trusting in God's own provision for salvation. It wouldn't be by having children that these women would gain God's salvation, but as they accepted God for who he is, and they trusted that his ways were better than their ways, their hearts then were open to the Spirit's work. By bearing children, by accepting God's role for them, rather than trying to cling to their own preferences and prerogatives, they demonstrated the sort of heart attitude that actually invites salvation. Now you realize they wouldn't be the first to relinquish rights that they could have very well held on to, right? You know that God wasn't asking them to do something that had never been done before, surrendering their own prerogatives. There was one who came before them who set aside his rights and were told even though he was God, 
He did not consider his divine prerogatives as something to be clung to. But he set aside his own rights and became human, suffered and died. Not for people who loved him, mind you, but for people who wanted to, nothing to do with him. Of course, I'm talking about Jesus Christ. The scriptures tell us that he left the beautiful surroundings of heaven in exchange for the stench of an animal stable. He left his place at the right hand of the Father and he came to the earth to suffer, to be beaten, to be spat upon, and to be eventually killed so that we, by faith, could have life. What was the role that Jesus accepted? He drank the cup of God's wrath so that you and I could be forgiven all of our sins and be given new life. Even Jesus himself said, no one takes my life from me. There's no one who has the power or authority to seize my life from me. I lay my life down so that you can receive forgiveness, so that you can receive the fullest sort of life imaginable. No one takes the life of Jesus. He surrendered his rights. He never ceased being God for a moment. He was always fully God. But he surrendered his divine prerogatives, refusing to hold on to them. And he came to the earth. He lived a perfect life so that by running to him in faith, we could be forgiven. In those moments when we start to believe that we should really be demanding our own rights, respect, and honor, and appreciation, we can look to the Son of God for encouragement and strength. Now let me end with this illustration. A few years ago, one of my boys was playing for a basketball coach who was very, very angry. This was a very angry person. And he would yell and belittle and curse and, and just, you know, the kids became, the players became so nervous they could hardly do anything right because this coach was just on them all the time. Well, somehow, after games, whatever, we, 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 this coach and I began to develop a friendship and we would stay and talk. And, and after, the, after his post-game meetings, which would sometimes last an hour, if the team lost, just keep berating them. But we developed this friendship. And one day he came up to me after all the kids, the students had left, the players had left. He said, Pastor John, can I meet with you this week? I said, sure, I'd, I'd love to meet. He said, can we meet in your office, a place of privacy? I said, sure, let's meet. And I, I said, I'll, you give me your, uh, your, your cell phone. I'll, I'll text you. I'll let you know what's available. So we ended up meeting that week late in the afternoon. And when he came down, he started to share with me just the struggles he was having with his wife and with his children. And he said, for me, it's all about respect. It's all about respect. He said, if I'm not respected, I get angry and I can't control it. He said, I need to be respected. And I said to him, I said, coach, why do you need to be respected so badly? He said, well, in the neighborhood that I grew up in, you have to understand it was all about respect. And if I don't have respect, I have nothing. And I said, well, here's the thing. You're going to be disrespected and you're going to be respected at times. But if you actually are in Christ, if you put your faith in Jesus, God makes you a brand new person. He lavishes upon you his approval, his acceptance, his love. And so it doesn't really matter. If someone disrespects you or respects you, it doesn't change your identity. It doesn't change who you are. And he was tracking. He was tracking. He's asking questions. He was, he was uncomfortable. He was nervous. He's moving around. I shared the gospel with him. I said, coach, listen, you can be in a place. 
You can be reconciled to God so that when you're disrespected, your world doesn't come crumbling down. This is the beauty of the gospel. When, when we put our faith in Jesus, God says, I'm going to make you brand new. I'm going to adopt you into my family so that regardless of what anyone else says about you, does to you, respects you or disrespects you, you can know that you're right with me. You can know that you're loved by me. And so as we look at this passage, this difficult passage, I think we come to the end of it and we say, yeah, we, we all have those rights we want to cling to. But what Paul's saying, admittedly, in a very difficult way, he's saying when we embrace who God is and who we are in light of that, we understand who God has made us to be in Christ by faith, then it doesn't matter what role we serve. We don't have to constantly try to seize authority. We don't have to constantly try to earn respect. We can rest in the approval and the acceptance and the love of the living God. And isn't that better than what anybody else can do for us? We rest in the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And all I can say is may God help us to do that by his spirit. Let's pray.